Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the BFI podcast, bits and bobs from across British film, brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry Barnes, digital editor at the BFI, and coming up this episode we have archive audio of gunslinger, film wrangler, and chair haranger Clint Eastwood talking about Sergio Leone, news of Bath Film's F-rated day, a celebration of film made by women, an interview with the director of Filmworker, a documentary about a man who threw the kitchen sink at working for Stanley Kubrick, and wedding bells for Harry, for Meghan, and most importantly, for you. We introduce a free season of wedding films that explore over the years the shifts in getting hitched. First up, Clint Eastwood, who moseyed up to the BFI a mere 33 years ago to talk about his career as an actor and director. We present this archive audio in celebration of our Sergio Leone season, which recently rode off into the sunset having brought a posse of classics, including the Dollars Trilogy, to the BFI South Bank. The interviewer was Linda Miles. Acting being a very childlike process, and it seems to be something that's very natural with, with children and not natural with adults, probably because there's been so many inhibitions stacked onto adults as, as they grow up that they, they lose the ability. And of course, the main thing one has to do is strip the, strip the layers of inhibitions back off so that you can uh, approach things with that sort of same sort of childlike imagination. I think probably during the rawhide years of doing seven and a half years of, of uh, a series day in, day out, I think that probably had a, 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 good, uh, a good influence as far as being really comfortable because you just, it's, uh, it's six days a week every, every week. You shot Monday through Saturday, you have Sunday off and you start a new episode. He's called the guitar. I guess he wouldn't mind if we exercise a little bit. Kind of start strumming back and forth like this and get a sound out of it. I'll show you. Riding hard, riding fast, always on the go. This is just a drover's life. This is all I know. Head him up, move him out. Always on the run Got to make a few more miles before the setting sun At the time you were doing Rawhide, you, you got this offer from Sergio Leone to make what ended up as a fistful of dollars mm-hmm. in Spain. Um, a, a lot of American actors had gone to Europe and had sort of disappeared. I mean, their careers had 
just vanished off the face of the earth through following that European route. I mean, at the time you agreed to do the movie, did it seem like a risk? Uh, no, it didn't seem like a risk because uh, I liked very much the, uh, the, the story that it was taken from. Uh, I had seen the Kurosawa film Yojimbo some years before that, and I liked it very much. In fact, uh, as I was watching it, I thought, gee, it's, a, it's like a mm -hmm. Western, but nobody would have nerve enough to make it. Then when it came through as a script uh, from a European director, I felt, well, maybe a European director would have nerve enough to approach it with uh, a certain amount of uh, style. And, uh, and I didn't see any risks because if I, I still had to go back and do more segments of Rawhide mm -hmm. for another year. There was, and if, that, if it for some reason didn't work out, I just got a trip to Europe. Go get your mule. You let him get away from you? <laughs> yeah. You see, that's what I want to talk to you about. He's feeling real bad. Huh? My mule. You see, he got all riled up when you went and fired those shots at his feet. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, you making some kind of joke? Mm, no. You see, I understand you men were just playing around, but the muley just doesn't get it. There were a lot of Italian-made westerns that were being shown throughout the world, but none of them had shown here in England or in the United States or the English-speaking population in ja in Japan they were running them over there and the Japanese the ones who dubbed uh, dubbed them macaroni westerns mm -hmm. is what they called them and then later it was uh, <clears throat> it came around as spaghetti but the uh, <laughs> pasta one way or the other any way you look at it the character from the Leone film seems to be I have a lot of the elements that you've used that have you know remained part of your persona uh, well, it's it the same actor standing there. I, yeah. I, I have, I, I have, uh, <laughs> I have. Uh, for instance, uh, I, I probably am somewhat laconic as a person, so that uh, those elements that came with that character 
are going to come with other characters that I play too along the line. You can play certain things and, and adapt them to yourself, but your basic uh, characteristics you can only change so far. And then mm -hmm. you comes a problem after that. He's an all night disc jockey. What does this request really mean? Play Misty for me. For Clint Eastwood, an invitation to terror. Nobody asked you to wait for it. You're not jumping me, Buster Blue Eyes. Get off my back, Evelyn. Have to get you all nice for David. I hope he likes what he sees when he walks in here. Because that's what he's taking to hell with him. I think it's interesting that in the first film you chose to direct, you, in a, you give the woman the, the better role. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a sense, I think the character played by Jessica Walters probably one of the, the best opponents you've ever had in a movie. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, at the time, did you feel that? Were you quite happy to...? Uh, yes, I knew that. Uh, in fact, one of the studio execs asked me, he said, why would you want to play a picture where the woman has the best role? And I said, I don't care who has the best role. He said other things, too, like, why would you want to play a disc jockey? And why would, who would want to see you play a disc jockey? And I said, who wants to see you play anything? I don't know. I just think that the story is, is of such that it may be a little unusual. Mm. And, uh, and, and I, I like the woman having the strong role. It's a, it gives you something to play off of. If, uh, if there was two women's parts and, and the, the man weaving his way through the situation and the psychotic woman is much more terrifying to me than a psychotic man in a way because there's a, they're, they're hidden under a, under a very beautiful shell is, uh, is some, something very disturbing where a psychotic male opponent you, st you start thinking well there's a fencing deal and uh, two masculine figures but a woman can be much more deadly, I think, can present a much more de deadly figure dramatically. Alive or dead, it's your choice. Let Red go. I met Muhammad Ali on a television program years ago in the States when he was at his prime, he's fight, he was the champion, and he, uh, he, we were going to go on this talk show, and he said, uh, we were backstage, and he said, would you come here a minute, come here, I want to talk to you. And he made his entourage, everybody else got to one side, come here. And we walked down through this hallway and that, back around the corner, nobody else was there. He says, would you do me a favor? I said, what's that? And he said, would you... Give me that look that you give on the screen and tell me I've got 10 minutes to get out of town. <laughs> <laughs> and being as he was the heavyweight champion of the world, <laughs> I just to told him I didn't have a gun on me at the time. <laughs> Clint Eastwood speaking to Linda Miles at the BFI in 1985 there.
I'll be honest, I haven't seen all of Sergio Leone's films. I haven't seen most of Sergio Leone's films. I doubt I've seen all of the three biggies. I'm at fault for that, obviously, but I'm not alone. Listener Christopher Attaway got in touch on Twitter to tell me about a project he and his partner Befan has been working on. It's an audio series called I've Never Seen a Western, and it charts Befan's journey from high new novice to quick-draw demigod. I really like how Befan talks about film. She's a matter-of-fact and very funny critic, so I thought I'd share a couple of excerpts, one recorded before they saw A Fistful of Dollars at the BFI South Bank, and one recorded shortly after. Can you say... My name's Bethan Lewis and I've never seen a Western before. My name's Bethan Lewis and I've never seen a Western before. I don't know anything about Sergio Leone. I know that, um, what's his chops? Thingy. You know, what's his name? With the Kill Bill and the... That one. Tarantino. That's the one! Big fan. Tarantino's big fan. I've never watched any kind of Western. They always look boring. When you like are flicking through the channels on a Sunday afternoon and it's a Western, they feel like they're quite slow moving or someone getting shot. Come on. Seems like a dad kind of genre. I don't know if it's because my stepdad's always been like, oh, that's a great film. But he thinks Das Boot is a great film. And that's just a long film. <laughs> it might be a great film, but it's a very long film. I'm worried I'm going to be bored. Thing is, if I don't go and see them at the cinema, I don't think I would ever think to watch them. So I think this is good. It forces me to watch them. I feel like it's like sitting through an opera or something, where you're like, this will enrich my understanding and experience of other art forms. But while it's happening, I'm not enjoying it necessarily. I could be wrong. I'm excited about being wrong. Tonight we went to see Fistful of Dollars. A Fistful of Dollars? A, a Fistful of Dollars? Yeah. yeah. A Fistful of Dollars. No one says A Fistful of Dollars, they do that. They say A Fistful of Dollars. Tonight we went to see A Fistful of Dollars. I liked it, it was good! I liked it. I liked it much more than I thought I was going to. I wasn't as bored as I thought I was going to be. It wasn't as long at all as I was expecting. I thought Clint Eastwood was really good. Charismatic. Funny. Get three coffins ready. Uh-huh. My mistake. Four coffins. Pretty, pretty darn handsome. Good head of hair on him. Good at riding a horse. And a man that can carry off a poncho like that, you have to respect and be a bit turned on by it was much funnier than I was expecting. Like, after he punched a woman in the face. <laughs> His look to camera. And then the unintentional funny stuff, like the dubbing, which was just spectacular. 
My favourite was the little boy who sounded like he was voiced by a 36-year-old woman. Papa! Oh, mama! I want to see my mama! Like, coming out of a three-year-old's body was really weird. I don't think it's nice, you laughing. And I really like the way people die in it. And then they fall over things, or out of things. There was a couple of bits, like with the woman, I wish I could remember her name. And I was like, hang who, who's she? But just at the point where I was like, I'm not getting this, one of the characters would go, I'm guessing you're wondering who she is. <laughs> You'd be like, yeah, I was. And then helpfully, they'd just tell you. Good expositional dialogue. Bethan and Chris Attaway's I've Never Seen a Western There. You can listen to the full series on Chris's SoundCloud, which I'll post a link to in our show notes. Next up, Wedding Bells, with another lully lully royal wedding just around the corner. Yay! We at the BFI are making available a load of wedding films, shot across Britain between 1911 and 1986. The 60 or so films are available to watch on the BFI's online streaming service BFI Player for free. I spoke to the collection's curator, Lisa Kerrigan, about why, across cultures and religions, despite class and title, filming the big day is a common experience. You have the ring ready for this. You take the ring and place it on the whole finger and say after me. Gans and Bizoma. Gans and Bizoma. Me af Timith. Me af Timith. Gans au Horf. How many hours of wedding videos have you watched to put this collection together? So many, so many brides and grooms and so much confetti. I see it when I close my eyes. <laughs> Are you yeah. a cynic about marriage now? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not actually. It's, it's, there's something quite lovely about watching all these wedding films and not knowing really what happened to people, especially the wartime weddings are really, really poignant. But... Um, the weddings of, of kind of more famous people or familiar figures like the royal family, obviously, you do know. But a lot of this collection is just home movies of people. It's just lovely to see, really. And I guess you're caught in a perpetual loop of people's happiest days of their lives, which must be really interesting. It is. <laughs> it is. And, um, th- and that is the thing about it. It's such a key area for home movies. It's such a natural subject for amateur filmmakers. And that's kind of, in any family, that would be when the home movie camera comes out. Can you give us an idea of some of the highlights of things that you've been watching? Are there any particularly unusual weddings that you can mention? They, they kind of break down into different categories. There's the, there's the royal newsreels um, from the 1910s and 20s. Those are quite interesting just because the kind of the fascination around royal weddings starts then. So it's been going on for nearly a century now. There's one, it's the Duke of York and actually the Queen Mother, well, it was King George VI in... 1923 and that one uh, we have a note about that that was shot by 19 cameramen which is like that's a really big media event for the time obviously it doesn't really compare to what happens now but it's interesting to note that we've got a good one from 1922 called princess mary's thought which is um the princess royal getting married in 1922 and it's a really it's just a speculative newsreel about what dresses people might wear to the wedding it's really, it's like a lifestyle bit that you'd see on morning TV now. It's like, maybe people would be wearing this type of dress. It's just, it's quite a nice little fashion bit that 
isn't really related to reporting the wedding, actually. It's just about styles. We have the royal wedding from 1947, which is the Queen and Prince Philip, which will be really familiar to any viewers of The Crown. It features highly in the first episode of The Crown. So it's interesting to look at that one and compare. On the home movie front, we have, um, we have a really lovely one called Let's Dream from the Northeast Film Archive from 1949. And in that, a couple are they're imagining their wedding. It's shot as though they're reading an annual of Hollywood film stars and they sort of start to imagine their wedding and then it cuts forward into their actual wedding. It's just wow. the style of it is really great. Yeah, yeah. arty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, innovative. <laughs> Having grown up here, when your father suggested that he ought to arrange your marriage rather than you make your own choice, did that not jar at all? Initially it did because... Of course, I've been used to more of English way of life than Eastern way of life. But um, my father said that uh, he told me what kind of girl I would prefer, and I told him what kind of he girl. He told you what yeah. kind of girl you would prefer. Yeah, and I said that she must be sensible, intelligent, must be able to look after the house, and uh, be of a good character. There's a, a wide range of people in them as well. I, I kind of naively went into it thinking we would just see white middle or upper class families getting married and but then as particularly as we go through the years you start to see quite a a wide diversity of communities that are engaging in wedding and the wedding videos don't seem to change that much between them either there seems to be a very kind of set standard as to how you shoot that kind of day no matter what culture you're from there is a set kind of aesthetic around the films definitely which is the kind of arrivals and then not necessarily capturing the ceremony whatever the ceremony may be and then the exit and sometimes cake and dancing and, and all of those things are quite a common feature um, of the films. But as you say, the, the collection really does show the kind of cultural diversity across Britain. There's all sorts of, of different kinds of weddings. We've got a Sikh wedding in Exeter in 1971. Unfortunately, that one is in black and white because it was shot for local news. And we have um, there's a couple of uh, Nigerian students getting married in Cornwall in... I think that's 1964, 65. Now, the elephant in the room is Harry and Meghan's wedding coming up, obviously. I was wondering how how we consume weddings and, and footage of weddings in the modern era. I mean, obviously, this is outside of the scope of the collection you've put together. But how do you think uh, social media and the Internet changes how we look at these massive spectacles? I think, yeah, it's an interesting one. These these types of films where where it's a kind of amateur filmmaker in the family kind of shooting on a, on a family's home movie camera has, I think, something in common or is related to how we shoot material now on our phones, for instance, now that we have that capability. It's that kind of raw footage that you get in the moment that you don't necessarily edit a lot of that. Um, but I think probably how we how we present weddings now is a little bit more filtered or considered. It's just that it's the change in technology and the accessibility of capturing the moving image. And I don't know if people are more inclined to share photos now rather than moving images of the day. It it maybe just feels that way. Mm. Yeah. It, it feels to me as well that people are much more conscious of their image and how they present that to other people now. And that I, I think pe- people are capturing things now in order to present them to other people, whereas a vi- wedding video before might have been just for the close community. Now it's for the much, much wider That's audience. definitely true. A lot of these films would have been shot by family members for viewing by family members at home. And there's some local news stories in there, which, again, you know, just would have been on the local news. And there's definitely a, a key difference in that and tweeting out pictures of your wedding for the world to see. 
what what's the BFI's responsibility when it comes to a big event like Harry and Meghan's wedding that's coming up? I mean, how will we look after footage that's captured of that event, seeing as there's going to be so much of it and so many different takes on it, I imagine? I'm, I'm glad you asked that, actually, because um, one of my primary roles is a television curator. And so we um, we record 17 channels, uh, the preview channels in, in the UK. So we will be recording all of the coverage from those channels for the BFI National Archive and preserving that for the future. It's enough to drive a Republican like me mad. <laughs> <laughs> The most notable event which took place in the time this scrapbook covers was the wedding of Lady Diana and Prince Charles. The national papers had a field day during the run-up period. Although there were a number of street parties which showed the patriotism of the residents and expressed a sense of occasion for the day, it seems that the majority sat glued to the television and Harrow's streets were remarkably empty. In the High Court of Happiness from 1927, that's a topical budget newsreel, which is about a tradition of, it's a competition to find the happiest married couple and then they win a side of bacon. <laughs> I think that's in Ilford. And that's a tradition that still goes on. I think it's every leap year. Right. We could all lie quite happily for that side of bacon. Couldn't we? <laughs> to win the bacon. <laughs> Get your fill of normal people weddings ahead of the big hoo-ha on the BFI player now. I'll link to the collection in our show notes. Next to Bath, where film Bath director Holly Tacchini is launching a day-long event, part of which celebrates female filmmakers. The day is a spin-off from F-Rating, a film classification that Holly developed in 2014 to highlight the participation of women in key roles in the film's production. A triple F-rated film, Holly's Gold Standard, stars a significant female character, is written by a woman and directed by a woman. The F rating quickly took off to become a classification recognised across indie cinema and beyond. Here's Holly telling me how it happened. The reactions to the F rating have been astronomical. So um, I came up with it at the festival in 2014 and thought maybe there'd be a little bit of local press, but there wasn't. There was a huge amount of international press. Um, so it really seemed to grab the public imagination. And because of that, in the following year, in 2015, we invited all of the independent cinemas and film festivals in the UK to F-rate their programme. So there are now coming up more than 70, I think, organisations who use the F-rating to highlight films directed and written by women. And then in 2017, IMDb, which is, of course, the largest film website in the world, added it as a keyword. So that means that you can now search F-rated on IMDb and get a list of 23,000 films, which again is fantastic because it's a really easy way for people to find their way to films directed by women. And what's really lovely about the IMDb listings is that the variety of films is, of course, phenomenal. So there's every type of film you could possibly imagine is in there because, of course, women have directed every kind of film. It's always hard to say this about something that you yourself have created, but what do you think people are reacting to? Why do you think now is the time for this sort of system? I think that in the 80s and 90s, um, there was a feeling that feminism was done, that it was, it was kind of, we had equality, women could work in the same roles as men, 
um, organisations like the BBC and other public broadcasting companies across Europe all signed agreements that they would have equal opportunities. Um, everybody made forms which said, are you male, female, are you disabled? What would you define your your um, race as? And all that kind of stuff. And then everybody seemed to kind of sit back and assume that those changes were going to happen. And of course, especially in the film industry, those changes really didn't happen. And it's become increasingly clear that actually we need to do something about it. We can't... We can't just depend on women being brilliant because that's clearly not enough. And, you know, in light of all of the Weinstein, Me Too, Time's Up, um, it's clear to everybody now what a sexist industry the film industry is. There's a piece in The Guardian today by Andrew Pulver about the Cannes lineup uh, post-Weinstein. He made the point that Cannes, by holding on to its love of tradition and holding on to its devotion to film history, is holding on to an extremely male, if not chauvinistic, culture. And I wondered what you felt we could do about that, that so much of film film history and film culture um, is embedded in this idea of the male auteur and the male talent. And how do we ever move away from that while still paying respect to the film history that brought us such great art at the same time? I think it's a really difficult question and it is really interesting that at the beginning of cinema women were massively involved both in in the kind of development of the technology that makes films and in the making of films and it was only when it became a high status job and had huge amounts of money um, that it suddenly became about the auteur and the auteur was definitely white and male. Um, So... It, it is interesting and what we do especially what we do with the abusive men that have made films that people love and that are part of our cinematic history I think is a really complicated question it's not one I can answer I think it's I think it's brilliant that we are finally having those conversations about what do we value and how do we value it and how do we treat it and I think there are no simple answers the Harvey Weinstein story is, in a sense, a kind of a singular thing, obviously, and that it, it's, it's a, it seems like it's marking a sea change, and it's also an international story. But it really interested me with the F-rating and the F-rated festival that you're holding, the F-rated day, that um, you're acting on a local level to to check to affect that problem. And I wondered if that was a point of the day that you're putting together, um, if you could tell us a bit about that, and um, whether it's important for us to remember that there will be big stories like the Weinstein thing, but the kind of day-to-day acts such as putting on festivals like this are the important thing as well. Yeah, so the F-rated day is on the 20th of May in Comedia in Bath and is a fantastic day. It actually covers far more than films. So we've got comedians, politicians, uh, authors, filmmakers, uh, artists. It covers everything and is all about championing women and amplifying women's voices. The two very filmic things that are happening are first of all we've got a panel where we are going to be examining all of these things so looking at the opportunity which exists at the moment in the film industry so post Weinstein in in the light of Me Too and Time's Up where can we go next and how can we make changes? We've got our only man of the day is coming to that panel, so Ken Loach, work permitting. He's our token male, so he predominantly works with a female producer. 
in I, Daniel Blake, he had two female editors. And the reason he had two was because they both had young children. So they job shared. So interesting to talk to him about how, as an influential man in the film world, how he can make changes and the changes that he can and is planning to make. Um, Kate Hardy, who is a director, writer and actor, is chairing the panel. And she's always been passionate about equality in the film industry and always campaigned against the abuse that happens in the industry, both on screen and off screen. Um, Then we've also got Jennifer Smith of the BFI. She's the head of diversity. There's also Anna Higgs, who used to run the digital aspect of Film 4. And we've got Joy Guerrero, who is a young producer. Um, And I'm very interested in hearing from her what her experience in the industry has been. And then in the evening, we've got a special screening of Frida, which, of course, um, Selma Hayek managed to get made uh, with Harvey Weinstein and despite Harvey Weinstein. So I'm sure you saw the amazing article that she wrote about it being her passion project. And she was desperate to have Harvey Weinstein as the producer, to have it as a Miramax film. So she really campaigned and fought to make that happen. And then, of course, he Weinsteined her. Um, and at the time, she didn't know where to go with that because he was her hero. And then here he was treating her appallingly, not respecting her because she was female. She wanted to be seen as an artist, just as Frida Kahlo did. Um, so, yeah, it feels like a really timely revisit to that film. I was wondering where you felt the ceiling was for the F rating. I mean, if you look at any of the streaming platforms now, it seems to me that it wouldn't be out of place finding an F rating symbol on, on their films as well. Absolutely. And and perhaps it's only a matter of time before they add it. So there are, because more and more organisations are using the F rating, uh, as it gains momentum and recognition, it's just an easy way for people to select films where the storyteller is female so yes it it could and obviously should be used on those platforms and it's the funny thing I mean I'm being naive and perhaps you know slightly kind of uh, fantasist about it but it's funny that it's hopefully it's designed for obsolescence that eventually you won't need an F rating symbol. It's always been my ambition for the F rating that it becomes unnecessary that we have 50% of films that we see are told by and about women it seems ridiculous that we're in 2018 having to have this conversation and that we're not already there. I I constantly, optimistically can't believe that we're not there yet um, and that we still have a huge way to go. But yes, I do hope it becomes obsolete because I don't get paid to do it. (laughs) (laughs) The F-rated day, part of the Bath Festival, takes place at Comedia in Bath on May 20th. More info in our show notes. And finally, to a new documentary about a man who worked himself to the bone for the sake of someone else's genius. Filmworker tells the story of Leon Vitali, a jobbing actor who, after performing in Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, became the director's right-hand man. Director Tony Ziera's film, which features extensive interviews with Vitali, asks how far each of us will go for our art. I spoke to Ziera just after he screened Filmworker at last year's London Film Festival. Dear Leon, thank you for your great talent, energy and kindness. Sincerely, Stanley. 
I had a different image of Leon before I met him. I thought I'm gonna meet this kind of healthy, robust guy who lives up in the hills doing well. And I really just found this gentle, tired, broken man that has been really run over by the Stanley Kubrick train, I call it. It's almost like after years of working for Kubrick, he, um, and I've noticed that with a lot of people that worked for him, um, it's almost like you lose your own self. When somebody would say to Stanley, I give my right arm to work for you, he would kind of smile because I actually think he thought, well, why are you lowballing me? What, just the right arm? I think they were both creative addicts. You, you, you can see how Kubrick's, like, towards the end, even with Eyes Wide Shut, he wouldn't even go to the doctor. He wouldn't even sleep. I mean, I talked to people that, uh, like the sound person for on Eyes Wide Shut at Ties, he said that he would be three in the morning and he wants to listen to every sound take. And Ed Tice said to him, he was like, well, Stanley, you know, this, uh, you know, it's my job. I'll find the good takes and let you listen to them. He's like, no, why wouldn't I do this? this I love doing it. And so I think they, it's, Kubrick wasn't one of those that like, just like, you know, had his cigar and sat in a chair and says action. He was really involved with every little aspect. So I think if people see it as he really was, um, abusive to Leon, I think he was also abusive to himself. Stanley never trusted anybody. He just did. Everything had to be to the millimeter. It is your responsibility to make sure they understand exactly what you want. Inventory, timing sheet, trailer, translation, lab work, kind of time, layout. I don't know how to do layouts. Sure you do. What a story. This guy is like, he's like, he is like the Kubrick exhibit, you know, in his house. And he was like, really like surrounded with boxes and, um, film material and like props and I was like this guy is like lives in a he is his own exhibit I volunteered to clean his whole house um, put all his stuff organize all his boxes because I figured if he starts to open boxes he'll remember and um, and it worked because he he almost forgot what he did how much he did so as he was looking at um, all this film material and like memos from Stanley screaming at him going you know I need this I need that he started to really remember and I think he was really surprised how much work he did he had really an amazing opportunity to to kind of work not to even kind of to work with one of the greatest filmmakers of that of the 20th century and you know who gets that but it comes with a cost you know he's he's sick he um, he he has a hard time sleeping, he, um, he pushed himself. There's something about torturing yourself and then showing something that really works and people responding to it. There's something beautiful about it. I know so many people that have been doing it for so many years, they haven't even been paid. Or, I mean, people always go, oh, well, you, like as a filmmaker, it's like, um, as far as, do you make money? I go, no, you don't make money, you spend money. And it's, that's the insanity of it, you know? But it's addictive. I wanted, I wanted to be with Stanley, work with Stanley, do all that stuff. I just wanted to. So it's a happy ending? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Filmworker is out in UK cinemas on Friday the 18th of May, the same day 2001 A Space Odyssey is being re-released to mark its 50th anniversary.
That's it for this episode. Special thanks this time around to Christopher Attaway and Bethan, Mike Munzer for the original edit of the Filmworker piece, and to you for listening. The BFI podcast is written, presented, and edited by me, Henry Barnes. Send me filmy stuff on Twitter, I'm at Henry H. Barnes, or to my BFI email address, henry.barnes at bfi.org.uk. Review and subscribe to the show through iTunes. Production support this time around was from Joel Grover Acast, who have brought the BFI pod into their fold. We're really happy to be here and it feels cosy. See you in a couple of weeks. This week's final line comes courtesy of some rink film about heroism and friendship. We will deep fry your kebab. <laughs>